Welcome to The Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 11, an interview with Dr. Reese Bazant. We have Reese here all the way from Melbourne, Australia, via our uh, favorite form, new form of technology, Zoom. <laughs> Reese, welcome, brother. How are things down under? Thank you. We're surviving the pandemic. We've had our first recession in the Australian economy in 29 years, just been recorded today. Mm. But we've kept the death count down. There's only been 100 deaths in the nation. So we've, it's been pretty extraordinary. That's incredible. Uh, I, yeah. I, my jaw dropped. That's, Michael's jaw dropped. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. We have 100 yeah, times so that, it, right? Yeah, that's right. But I, there's only like 1,000 people that live in Australia, though, right? <laughs> Everybody's, it's, it's, it's all out back there. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're talking about like it the- is true. It is, it is true that your population is 15 times the size of ours. But if you do the maths, we don't do math here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I've been to Melbourne, which is a is is it is actually my favorite city that I've ever been to, stateside or abroad, uh, and it is a Thank very you. very big city, very big city, more, much more than yeah, a thousand it's a city, people. It's a city of five million. So. It's kind of in that pocket that America doesn't have so many five million person cities. America has, you know, I think forty or fifty cities of one million, and of course the the mega cities like Los Angeles or or New York. But Melbourne, Sydney, are in that kind of medium pocket. Good. Now, Michael, Michael's joining here in the in the global worldwide headquarters of the Bonhopper House. Mm-hmm. Michael, how are things in Floyd? There's significantly less than five million people in Floyd. How are things out there? Yeah, we're, I don't even think we're five, yeah, 500 in the actual town and then more like 15,000 in the county. <laughs> so uh, we're doing well. We, uh, we, we have less than 100 COVID cases in Floyd County. <laughs> That's right. I actually think there's only around 100 cases in all of the New River Valley. Yeah. Which so, is about 100,000 people. So we're not quite... As doing as well as Australia, Australia, but yeah, yeah. So Australia shut things down, but Floyd is just—it's just not that open. It's just kind of perpetually. That's how we, yeah, operate. Yeah, there's a lot of physical distancing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, guys, I had a really interesting experience uh, yesterday. We we have uh, you know, there's a lot. Reese, I know you're following the news, and there's a lot of uh, protests, a lot of unrest in our in our nation right now around. Uh, George Floyd and uh, really the issue of uh, racial injustice uh, that's that's kind of inbuilt into our American project. And uh, in our little small town, our small city of Radford, we uh, we we had a a peaceful prayer protest march yesterday that I took my 10 year old son, Elijah, and we went together and uh, it was it was it was both. um Powerful and strange. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you about what was strange. It was organized by this uh, by this this couple, biracial couple. Uh, had and this is this was beautiful about it. It had a a um, a very multi ethnic, uh, multi colored uh, participation. Mm-hmm. And, and for a small town, it was good. There's probably fifty or sixty people uh, that turned out. And the the strange of it was um, this couple is clearly more on the charismatic. Uh, side of the church, and so so <laughs> we so we we gathered together. It was going to be a prayer walk, and they brought so they're they're uh, welcoming us, describing what we're going to be doing, and then they said, "Hey, by the way, we have a stack right here of um, anointing oils that we've put in Ziploc bags, and so feel free to come grab your anointing oil, and we're going to anoint the streets as we walk through and pray for our city." So that was uh, that was delightfully strange for me. Uh, I did spend some time in the charismatic world, and so it wasn't that strange. But um, but you know, we had some people walking around with Ziploc bags of oil, dropping you know, it's <laughs> like slick shoes from the Goonies. You got to be careful if we walking on the sidewalks in Radford this morning. Yeah. Um, but huh. you know, yeah, one of the one of the more powerful, th- well, the most powerful part of it is uh, we went out and we 
we spread out on the on the sidewalk on Main Street, and uh, fifty or sixty of us all took a knee and had silent prayer for the eight minutes and fifty six seconds that represent the amount mm-hmm. of time that the officer's knee was on George Floyd's neck, and uh, and in that time we were all, you know, asked to either uh, just be quiet or pray quietly. And I'm next to my son, Elijah, and we're praying mm. quietly. And I got to tell you, eight minutes and 56 seconds is an eternity. Yeah. It is so long. It was so powerful to uh, just imagine that, how, how long this was. Like, uh, yeah. And so, so had some really powerful conversations with my son about the kind of um, cruelty that, that takes that long to continue to put pressure on someone's neck when they can't breathe, when they're crying for help, and, and really even conversations about uh, what, what that says about our nation, what, what our relationship to our nation really ought to be, uh, prayerfully, hopefully, but also, also confrontingly and challengingly. So a really powerful experience for us last night, and, and um, mm. uh, even while it was beautiful and, and strange. You guys ever... Uh, Anointed streets with oil? I can't say that I've ever anointed streets with oil. Mm. I have anointed persons. Yeah, Reese is coming from a more uh, high church Anglican place. You guys do oils and smells and bells and, and sensors and stuff, right? You ever anointed a, a street before? It happens, but I've never done it. Uh. I prefer to anoint living things rather than inanimate things. Mm. 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 Good, good. And we have, we have good biblical warrant for doing that. Well, hey, Reese, we're so glad that you're joining us here on The Hammer and the Quill. The Hammer and the Quill is all about Philippians 4.8 and having a Philippians 4.8 lens of looking at the lives and vocations of interesting people. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, Think about these things. You know, we want to we, we want on the on the hammer and quill to stop and look at the lives and vocations of people who are serving God in a variety of ways in, uh, through a Philippians four eight kind of lens, seeking the good, true, and beautiful. The hammer, the house, and the quill of the Bonhoeffer house really represent work, friendship, and study. And so we're 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 really particularly interested in diving into those categories, looking at uh, unique habits and practices, tips and tricks. Uh, about kind of work, friendship, and study. We wanted to have Reese on the podcast because, Reese, you are a longtime friend of the house. You've preached in our churches at Valley Bible Church. You've spoken at one of our local theological conferences. You've written for us over on the House Journal. You've guest lectured in our classroom. You've been a friend and mentor to more than one of us, including me, in fact, uh, Reese's writing and practices of mentoring and friendship is is uh, primarily where we want to go today. It's sadly a bit rare to find a public theologian so invested in mentoring and friendship. And so, Reese, here's what we do here on the podcast. We ask you this simple question. Introduce yourself by telling us what would be on the back of your baseball card. Now, oh, you're Australian. Do you guys do baseball cards? Maybe we should ask this. What would be on the back of your rugby card? So I don't think I really know what you mean. <laughs> however, however, if you're asking for a life motto, is that what you're asking? For? No, no. But I'd love to hear your life motto. <laughs> yes, please. No, we're, well, I have two, <laughs> okay, go ahead. I have two life mottos. Uh, my life motto used to be "suffering than glory." Mm. More recently, it's "faithful than forgotten." Uh, so those are the kinds wow, those of are tremendous. tracks I play in my head. Faithful and then forgotten, uh, which um, harkens back to uh, who was it that said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten? That I do not know. Oh, that's I thought you were going to say, preach the gospel if necessary with words. So I might have known <laughs> the answer to that one, but no, you went somewhere else. I do have a little statue of St. Francis uh, that someone bought me that's in my little garden area outside of my study. When people walk by and ask who it is, I say, oh, that's Luther. Well, it's just safer that way. I asked you if it was Luther. <laughs> <laughs> you corrected me, though. Well, with you, I can tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, no, I, li- I think it's Count Zinzendorf that said that. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Okay. Mm. 
What a great Thanks motto. So. No, what we're looking for is your vital statistics. Tell us about, about your, uh, just who you are, what you do. <laughs> uh, give us a little background. I don't, I don't know any, like, I don't even know what statistics they keep in rugby. So right. I couldn't even I crushed say. a man 25 <laughs> times. So many scrums. Scrums. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's only rugby union. That's not rugby league. Tries. So there are two different kinds of rugby, right? No, my statistics are I'm a Melbourne man born and bred here in the city. I studied uh, for a time German and, and that both in Melbourne and in Germany. Uh, then I studied theology, worked as an Anglican minister, and for the last uh, 17 years I've been teaching at Ridley College in Melbourne. So it's an Anglican theological college. Uh, our students come from every kind of background, uh, but the faculty are all chiefly Anglican. Great, great. And Reese, uh, how did we first meet? How did you first get involved in, how did you first become a friend of the Bonhoeffer House? I'm not even sure that I know this. Do you remember, Reese? So, uh, indeed, not only have I spoken at conferences and, and done other podcasts for you, but also I wear your Bonhoeffer House swag around the neighborhood. Oh, because thank you. at the last time I was with you, yes, at the last time I was with you, you gave me a gift of, uh, a, a, I think you'd call it a sweatshirt or something like that, <laughs> and <laughs> and I wear it so people look at me quizzically as I as I roam the local streets. Uh, how did we first meet? Uh, we met at a Jonathan Edwards reading group. That's right. In Salem, right? It was in yep. Salem. And uh, Jerry McDermott, a mutual friend, introduced us to each other. That's right. What a fun little uh, th surprise it was for me about 10 years ago to find out that there was a, a group of pastors, uh, well, pastors and scholars, including Jerry McDermott, who, who met regularly once a month for, and at that point it had been going on for 10 or 15 years, uh, to read through and discuss the works of Jonathan Edwards uh, and present papers. It was really so. It was really a, really a fun part of my life being being in that group for a while before we began to offer Monday classes with the Bonhoeffer House, which has taken me away. But that is where we met, and so uh, so thankful that we did that we did meet. Mm. Now, uh, you know, we're all about exploring how God is honored in the variety of vocations or callings that He has for people. We've talked in the past in past episodes about. Uh, the idea of vocation really comes from the Latin for call, to call. And so, so uh, we, we want to say, we want to dive in and explore the variety of ways that God calls people to honor him, serve him, serve and love people. So tell us a little bit more about your vocation. What has God called you to in particular? So the, the thing I feel most strongly about is training leaders. So I once would have said my call was to help people plant churches or help people to pastor churches. In a, in a way, that's true still, but I think uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit more general that I'm wanting to train leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ in Melbourne and beyond, and that's what makes my heart beat fast. I, I think there aren't enough leaders uh, there aren't enough people who are going to pastor our grandkids. Uh, the leaders we do have haven't been necessarily well-formed, especially in Australia at least. Those who were trained in the 70s uh, weren't trained, I think, very well. The world was changing so quickly and the training was inadequate for the future. So I think we need to deliberately invest. Once upon a time, ministers might have naturally propelled themselves forward and uh, found themselves at seminaries. But these days, you've got to do a whole lot more work before people arrive at the stage mm. that they'd undertake theological studies and do a whole lot more work then in the first five or ten years now. So that that's uh, really what makes my heart beat fast. You know, it's so encouraging to hear hear that. And in fact, oftentimes when, when we're called to talk about the Bonhoeffer house in our circles, I will, I will ask that question of who will pastor your grandchildren. That's really what, really, that's, yeah. that's why we exist. We, we exist to train the next generation of leaders because, uh, not just because we want leaders today or tomorrow, but, but because we want, we want to train up leaders who are going to be in it for the long haul, who are going to be connected in deep friendships across uh, congregations and regions and who will be trained up in order to train up the next generation so that 
so that we, you know, we're looking at grandkids who are hearing the gospel and, and being formed in the church. Now, I wonder if I wonder if I got that language from you. If so, I have not quoted you once. I've not I've not given you any credit for that. I was wondering the same thing as Reese was sharing. I was like, "That this sounds really familiar." <laughs> Jesse says this. I a was lot. wondering, but I was wondering whether I'd heard it from you actually. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Wow. Yeah, that's high yeah, praise. Yeah. Well, that's probably what happened. You know, I, <laughs> I, it's funny as as both of you are sharing this. It's I, I find it's oh, it's almost unnatural to to think that way currently. Um, that that everything is so, so immediate, so fast, so, so right at the touch of your fingers that thinking about who's going to pastor my, and, and, and maybe as, as we grow older, that becomes more of a question on the front of our minds. But, um, but I find that co- question really compelling. Who's going to, who's going to pastor, uh, my daughter, who's going to pastor, um, my grandkids, uh, you know, one day. Mm. Um, so just a, just a fascinating question. It's really important to consider. And I think partly because I don't, I'm not saying that people should stay and work in the same church for 20 or 30 years, but I still think that if you feel called into Christian ministry, it's not something you can easily turn off. You know, I do meet people who have a passion for five years and then just dump it and do something else. And I find that very strange. Mm. I find that very weird. Mm. That's good. You know, um, part of that journey for me of, of looking uh, beyond just the immediacy of, of, um, of what's happening in, in, in our church or in the Bonhoeffer House, uh, I was reading a book called The Imperfect Pastor. I don't know if you've seen this, Reese, but it's by a guy named Zach Eswine. And... Uh, and he's, he talks about the temptations that pastors face is that is the temptations of being everywhere, of uh, being, being able to fix everything, of knowing everything, and of immediacy. That uh, we, really we feel like we have to be everywhere all the time. We have to know all the answers. We have to fix everything, and we have to do it now. It's got to be right now. And uh, just realize, man, you know, it's... We don't have to be everywhere all the time, fixing everything, knowing everything, and 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 immediately. Uh, actually, we need to be thinking about uh, we need to be thinking about the long term. And one of the cool things about you know Reese, you you sharing my my passion is to train leaders. Is there is a little bit of a a you know maybe not a an, an intentional pushback against uh, the kind of prevailing thought of, of our cultural moment, but, but your, your impact is focused on how can I help this array of different men, uh, use their giftings and, and find their, their callings and then have them be impactors, have them be, uh, you know, men who are going to affect their communities, affect their, their spheres of influence um, and it's, it's not necessarily about what, what am I doing that's going to leave a mark or, uh, or leave an impact. So it, it, it comes back to that, that motto you shared with us of, uh, yeah, w- yeah. What was it again? Um, faithful then forgotten. Yeah. I, mean, I think that one of the, the hardest things in terms of, in terms of spirituality in, in my kind of line of work, teaching in a seminary or a theological college is I'm a backroom boy. So I'm not on the front line. So I only see the fruit of my labours five, ten years after I've met with someone or lectured someone. Mm. And that takes a lot of uh, learning not to resent the guys on the front line and indeed rather to celebrate their achievements and also to be patient until I see the fruit arrive. Mm. So it's been it's been. I'm a bit of a glory boy. I like being up front. I like preaching. I, I, I like giving lectures. But deliberately learning to take that back seat so mm. that others can better be trained as leaders is, is important, but it's been hard. That's excellent. That's excellent. And, uh, and that idea of, um, you know, we've had you on the podcast on a different podcast that I co-host with Reed Monahan called The Gospel Underground, where we really are trying to explore not just... Um, uh, the borderlands between the church and culture, but to do it in a in a particularly intentional underground or um, how you how did you put it backroom back boy room. 
Backroom boy. Back, I like that. I like that. Now, now I was going to ask you what it's like being a public theologian. See, I, I think you I think you might be more of a front front room boy than you <laughs> than maybe you're letting on. I imagine you're you're like you're like the NT right of Australia. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of an American equivalent. It's a bit harder because there's such a such a diversity of voices, and um, and maybe also because there's no one who uh, who kind of serves as a theologian for the nation or something like that. Uh, not yeah, that, not that I can think of. I, I I was thinking Al Mohler for for us Baptists, but I'm not sure that we want to go there. So anyway, uh, <laughs> you what's don't, you don't want to claim him? <laughs> I'm, not say, I'm not saying that. Uh, or, or maybe Jamie Smith for young people. Sure. But he's kind of like, he's like, he's a little edgy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, what's it like being a public theologian in Australia? Yes. I I don't use that language normally because I, I think in my mind, public theologian means someone who talks about politics or social issues. I have opinions, but I don't blog them. That is, I don't feel like I'm a public theologian. However, am I a theologian in the public? Mm. Yes, as I speak or write about issues in the church or issues in leadership. And I think it's taken me a long time, though, to find my voice in those forums. I don't think it's natural to me to presume that people want to hear my opinions and that if I blog something that the world owes me an audience... So I think I've grown into it quite slowly, to tell you the truth. Mm. But there has been recently some writing I've done that's been well received in the kind, not the blogosphere per se, but in more popular channels and more popular circles, which has its feedback loop in the blogosphere. So I've I've appreciated that I can do it, but I think I've grown into it quite slowly. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, how do you navigate? You know, this idea of um, you're. You're writing in public. You're serving the academy. You're also serving the church, both local and regional. Uh, how do you navigate the, your commitments, um, your callings to both the academy and the church? So I find it really hard. Uh, there's a part of me that would love to be on the front line and to be more and more involved in the life of a local congregation or the life of a denomination. And there's other days when I feel like all I want to do is read and write and withdraw from the front line. So I'm genuinely torn. One of my former colleagues at a church in Melbourne where I worked said to me once, Reese, you're the most genuinely general. Wait a second, I stumbled over my words. You're the most genuinely generalist in ministry whom I know. Mm. And I kind of at, the, at that moment felt really offended because I didn't want to be a generalist. I want to be known for something. Mm. But I think... That probably has tracked with me that uh, wanting to do things with my face to the church and wanting to do things with my face to the academy reflects a, a range of interests and a range of skills. And so I've, got, I've had to learn to live with both the generalist tag but also being torn between two arenas. How do I do it? Well, I, I like sinking myself into both but not a lot of hours, that is. I'm not trying to match the hours I do at college with the hours I do in the church, but just making sure that I've got some deep roots in the church that will help my, my, my lecturing in, in the seminary. Yeah, and thank you. And that, and that idea of uh, being labeled a generalist or maybe even being a generalist, um, that's interesting. Uh, it seems to me that you almost have to be, even if you're in the academy and you're such a uh, uh, kind of a narrow specialist in one particular, say, um, uh, theological, what uh, 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 maybe person or um, locus, that, uh, that that makes it hard to then be, a, be some, because the church is not like that, right? The church is this kind of broad uh, family that is, people from all kinds of, kind of different uh, walks of life, all kinds of different, even um, abilities to track uh, intellectually and emotionally and faithfully with things. And so do you, do you find that that maybe is a prerequisite to be a church person from the academy, that you have to be a little bit more of a generalist? Or am I making mm-hmm. that up? No, and I think in Australia as well, 
professors who teach in seminaries are more likely to be generalists than in the US because in Australian seminaries, which are smaller, we have to teach in a number of different areas. And uh, the fewer seminaries, so your students are probably from a broader range of backgrounds in any one seminary. So I think probably that goes with the gig mm. at, at really where I teach. But uh, you do have to keep thinking about what you're reading and how it might apply to that church, this situation, that debate, and keep reminding yourself of the connections. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you, your most recent book, Edwards the Mentor, uh, is excellent. Uh, Oxford University Press, we have uh, used this in the Bonhoeffer House. And as a matter of fact, we most recently uh, used it as part of a class on, uh, on disciple-making, personal discipleship and disciple-making. Uh, it was a kind of supplemental resource for us. We especially dove into some of the uh, some of the things that you cover in here, especially regarding the uh, the mimic way of imitation, um, and so uh, so I just I want to recommend the book first, uh, and then also say um, tell us a little bit about it. Tell us, give us a little uh, kind of you know for our listeners, many of whom maybe are not familiar with it. Tell us a little bit about this book, Edwards the Mentor. So I discovered along the way that Jonathan Edwards was an excellent mentor. I didn't come to him originally thinking about how he mentored people. I came to him originally to think about how he understood the church from a theological perspective. But then when I saw the way he was engaging with quite a small number of young guys, actually, and how he invested in them and the multiplying ministry that they themselves had, I was I was super impressed and wrote a, wrote a paper on it and Jerry McDermott was in the conference where I gave the paper and he said, have you ever thought of turning this into a book? And I hadn't. But then for a number of years after that, I, I worked on it. So it was, was a great example and he backs up, like in everything he does, he backs up his example with deep theological reflection. He doesn't speak about mentoring in the same ways that you and I might, but he does speak about the importance of imitation in the Bible's uh, storyline. And I actually think that the theological theme of imitation is not much spoken about in our circles, at least. So it was really refreshing for me, not only to see him do it and to be able to write about how he did it, but to write about how he thought the scriptures encouraged him to do it, which is which is the great thing about Edwards, and he had a massive impact before the revolution and afterwards. Excellent, excellent. Now, how do you how do you in your own in your own life how do you practice mentoring? I, I'd love for you to describe your philosophy of mentoring. Um, let's start there. Yeah, what 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 do you when you think of mentoring? What are you thinking of? Uh, my first goal is to help guys think about their lives in integrated ways. Mm. So I think often guys imagine that the way they grow up as a Christian is to exercise one particular spiritual muscle a lot and then that strong spiritual muscle can get you through. So there was a time in the not-too-distant past when the phrase was often used, I'm not a big fan of it, man up, which kind of means make some hard decisions, uh, count the cost. And I think being a Christian does involve making hard decisions and counting the cost and taking up your cross and denying yourself for the sake of Christ. But actually making decisions is only one part of what being a disciple is. Mm. We need to cultivate the spiritual muscle of the mind and the spiritual muscle of the imagination mm. and the spiritual muscle of emotions and make sure they're all working with each other rather than against each other. So I think the healthy person is a person who's integrated who can let, let each part of their life connect with every other part. So that's my goal in mentoring to help. It's a very long-term process, right, but to actually help the people I, I, I chat with to make those deep connections on any one 
day, the deep connections probably aren't going to be knit together, but over a longer period, uh, they would be. But my, the second thing I'm doing, I think, when I mentor people, and I use this tag, I, I feel like I've got lots of mottos today, but the, <laughs> the, the motto I use is uh, preparation for separation. My job in mentoring people is not that they depend on me or that they merely uh, kind of mimic me or ape me. My goal is to, to help them stand on their own two Christian feet and to be their own person before the Lord. Uh, so my job is to empower rather than uh, make me the focus or, or make uh, those I meet with dependent on something I've thought or I've understood or something like that. So those are, those are two of the big themes, I think, in my mentoring ministry. That's really interesting. The idea of um, well, both of those things. I love to uh, love to dive into a little bit, but the idea of uh, it, incorporating imitation, but not becoming um, yeah. Reese centered, right? Like, what an interesting thing that Paul does, even in his letters, where he says, "Hey, you should you should imitate me as I imitate Christ," uh, and yet and yet Paul's goal wasn't to form little miniature Pauls, yeah, but actually to see uh, those whom he mentored or discipled. Uh, become more like Christ in their own particular ways, and so that that's an interesting um, that's an interesting balance. How do you manage that? How do you manage uh, both incorporating a sense of imitation, where you're you're doing life with someone and you're saying, "Hey, you really should imitate me as I imitate Christ," and yet uh, have it not really be have have it kind of pass by you, uh, so that really who they're imitating is Christ in you. How, how do you manage that? So it's inevitable that when you spend a lot of time with a person, you end up picking up some of their mannerisms, right? That, that happens. It's happened to me. I can remember some of my earliest lectures at university. I found myself, when I first lectured at Ridley, using some of their mannerisms. I don't know where I picked it up. But the Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, uh, he's wanting people to imitate his passion-like character, so he's like Christ, he's dying and rising. That's what I want the next person to learn. So, yes, of course, along the way, there'll be speech patterns or gestures or mannerisms that are kind of imitated. But the goal in the end is, is to, be, uh, to have a cross-shaped life, which is exactly what, what happens when you get baptised, right? As you get baptised, you're modelling what's going to happen to you every day of your life. Mm. You're going down in the water and you're coming up. You're dying and you're rising. Baptism gives you a picture of what daily discipleship is and I'm there to help uh, give that some kind of expression in the next guy's life. That's yeah. so good. I don't know if you heard this, but the crowds went wild for that part about the, uh, the, the passion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go ahead, Michael. Yeah, the imitation being yeah. being imitating the, the passion of Christ. The suffering then glory. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit more about uh, within within that imitation uh, aspect of of mentoring. What what level of vulnerability, I guess? What what level of opening up your own life is required uh, to to really help somebody see this is what it looks like to live a cross shaped life, uh, at least for you know for Reese. No, I, I want to give people a window into my soul if I can. And I want people to see how God is taking me apart and putting me back together again. One of, the, my, one of my closest friends today, he was converted when we were living in a residential dormitory, a residential college together as undergraduates. And I was having a hard time. I was seeing a counsellor and I was confiding in him. He wasn't a Christian. And he, had, he gave me one night this most beautiful line. He said, Reese. I see the way God is working in your soul when you tell me about how you're processing these deep things in your heart. And in, uh, he ended up becoming a Christian. He's still one of my best friends. Mm. Uh, it was a great reminder to me that you don't argue people into the kingdom. You actually give them access to what God might be doing in your soul. Mm. That might always be easy and it's not always appropriate, like you've got to choose your moments. But I think in the end, I do want to share something of my heart. So what I, one other thing I do is I, I'm quite 
comfortable in sharing my finances. I don't mean giving money away, but I kind of do a bit of that. But telling people about my finances, and I, th- and I actually think this is pretty radical in many of my circles. We don't we talk about lots of other things, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about money. Mm. Uh, and I think those I mentor are often very surprised that I'm prepared to open up about how I think of my finances. It's just a small countercultural posture, but I think it's given people a window into my soul and I'm in a much more kind of prosaic way. Could you give an example of, of maybe how you do that in a mentoring relationship? Yes. So I'm happy to tell people how much I earn and I'm happy to tell people that my giving is about 15% of my earnings, but I'm wanting to work towards 20%. Mm. Uh, And people are often shocked not, not, I think, by the sums themselves or the actual figures that you attach to them, but the fact that you wanted to or felt comfortable to give people access to that private sphere. Yeah. And our finances, our finances are often the most the things we hold closest to our chest, which is just utterly ridiculous. I wonder too, uh, having known you now for a while, Reese, um, and being uh, being on the side of. Um, benefiting from your sacrificial generosity and hospitality, you know, often when when Reese comes to my home or to uh, to serve us, uh, he comes with gifts, right? Like, if Reese is coming to town, I I know that there's you know, he's gonna leave and there's gonna he's gonna leave something behind, and so I wonder uh, how much do you think? And Michael, feel free to jump in here. Your uh, demonstrated generosity goes hand in hand with that. Because I think if there's a there's a kind of um, openness to finances, but it's coming from a posture of, look how great I am, look how much I have, that's different, right? That's different than uh, a posture of, I'm, I want to share with you not just the information about what I do, but actually uh, I, I have shared my life and even my finances with you. How important do you feel like that is? Yes, and secondly, or... Uh, Further that, having people in your home, offering them hospitality. Australians are hopeless at having people in their home. We used to do it all the time. But the average Australian now has someone in their home for a meal, apart from grandma or something, only twice a year. Wow. We, we go out to restaurants, right? Or we go out to cafes or we go out to pubs. But actually, it's so powerful inviting people into your not the dining room is necessarily a private sphere, but your home is a private sphere. And yeah. I think people are just really touched by it. It's a very simple thing. But again, it's it's pretty countercultural. And offering them a lamb roast or something is is that's my my uh, hospitality uh, de rigueur. That's what I normally do. And uh, I think people appreciate it. Mm. Good. So I have another question about mentoring here for you, Reese. Uh, who who mentored and or who mentors you now? So there are a couple of older men who I meet with, some more often, some less often. And I've met with them for 30, 35 years, each of them. Uh, one fellow has been a, a pastor of my church and principal of Ridley College. Another has worked on campuses with students for our InterVarsity for a number of years. And both those guys have have been uh, powerful influences in my life uh, and they still speak into my life. Uh, it's uncomfortable if they want to rebuke me, but uh, I kind of let, leave myself open for them to do that. They're, yeah, and sometimes the conversations are intensely theological. Sometimes they're really kind of general about living, cooking, friendship, reading history or something, but they each have different forms at different times. How important is it, in your opinion, to have uh, more than one person serving in that kind of a role? Yes, I, I don't know that you should play them as collectibles. Uh, so I was mentoring a guy. He said, Reese, fantastic, you can be my ministry mentor. i just let you know that I have a marriage mentor and I have a personal quiet time mentor and I have... Uh, kind of evangelistic <laughs> preaching mentor and so on. And I said, well, I don't mind you having these other guys speaking to your life, but I, I, I'm not 
hearing you saying, I'm not allowing myself to hear you saying, I'm not allowed to speak into those other areas. Right. Because if mentoring is in the end a, a ministry of integration, a ministry of the word that's aiming at integration, then I can't promise that I'm not going to speak or ask questions about his marriage or his finances or his daily devotions and so on. So I don't mind people having there being a couple of people who regularly speak into their life, but I just don't want to be hyper-specialised about it and so keep keep certain areas for that person and some distinct other area for the other guy. Mm, mm. Uh, good, yes, and, uh, and, and that's good. So in other words, not that important. It, it can happen. <laughs> you can have more than one mentor, certainly. Uh, but it's not, you, we're not collecting them. And just to be, that felt like a kind of a subtle rebuke of the question of me, but, but, it, <laughs> but I'm not the person you're talking about, right? Like just, I want to make that clear to our listening audience. Uh, that was not me. You, you are not collecting. I, I, well, I can't judge that on my, but I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Sure. Reese, I wanted to, I wanted to ask before we move on from here, when, when you talk about ministry or mentoring being a, a ministry of integration, you know, I, th- I think our listeners can hear that you've already been talking about what, what exactly that looks like. You're, you're asking questions about people's finances. You're sharing about your own finances while you're also talking, you know, about the, the scriptures, the word of God, the person of Jesus, um, but I, I just was curious if you could maybe a little bit more uh, explicitly share uh, what what types of questions are you asking in order to get at that integration of, of the Christian life? So I think asking questions is a magnificent skill that people need to practice. It doesn't come easily. We prefer to talk about ourselves or talk about it or ask easy questions. So you've got to listen a lot to be able to ask good questions, right? Mm. But uh, what am I doing? I'm asking questions about the way the scriptures fit into their daily experience in ministry, family. Uh, I'm wanting to not just do a Bible study with someone, but draw down the various kinds of Bible input that they've had that week or that month mm. and help them process it in relation to them as an individual rather than just generically for the church. So the questions I ask could be questions about people's marriage or it could be questions about people's Bible reading or questions about why did you just say that? Where did that idea come from? Mm. Or hone in on something that it, that struck me as odd in this conversation and, and try and unpack something. Uh, I have friends and I ask them quite often about their marriage. I was best man at their marriage. And there was one occasion when they'd had a row at home and I was coming over for dinner and they said to each other, look, we've got to actually deal with this because Reese is going to ask us about how we're doing <laughs> and we to make sure that we've, we've addressed the outstanding issue. And that night I thought to myself, look, I'm just not going to ask that question. I'm just not going to ask. I don't have to ask the same question on every occasion. So I didn't. We got three quarters of the way through the meal and one of them said to me, well, aren't you going to ask us a question about our marriage? We'd prepared for you to ask it. <laughs> so well, if you want me to, I will. But it, was, it wasn't on my agenda tonight. Uh, so you've, you've got to play it a bit, um, you know, case by case, horses for courses and so on. You used a couple different Australian slang in there. That's right. We don't we don't usually say horses for courses, but uh but yeah. we do but I do I think we we do know what it means. Yeah. Well, we do, but only because he shared with us <laughs> years ago. <laughs> we also don't regularly row. use row. Yeah. Yeah. which is a fight in yeah, case that's you right. don't know. Yeah. Oh, I say I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Right. Sure, yeah. sure. I hadn't realized that one. Yeah, that's okay. I appreciated that. Tell tell our listeners what horses for courses means. It means assessing things case by case so that you, you don't have the same tricks to play in every situation. You work out what the situation needs. And some horses like a wet track and some horses like a dry track. Uh, there are certain horses like certain courses, right? So you've got to if – you, if, you, if you were a betting man, Mike, you'd have to be careful which, which uh, bet you placed on which horse given the wetness or dryness of the track. 
I love it. Love it. Horses for courses. Work, now, okay. in, integrate that into your daily vocabulary. <laughs> uh, you, you have you have written for us a really um, kind of uh, uh, interesting article about mentoring and its relationship to discipleship. Can you can you unpack that just a bit? How how do you see you know in the scripture? Interestingly. Uh, the word for disciple or discipleship isn't used very much, especially beyond uh, the Great Commission into into Paul's letters, um, and yet it's still a pretty thoroughly biblical concept of of to make disciples. It's certainly the the commission that Jesus gives us. And so, how do you see? Uh, we've been talking about mentoring this this podcast. How do you see mentoring and discipleship uh, working together, overlapping in relationship with one another? So the language of discipleship. Uh, is mainly gospels language, not epistles language. And we often say that disciples are ones who follow. Actually, the language of disciple is learner rather than follower. So it has a very specific kind of meaning in the gospels. But, of course, we're learners using other language in the New Testament uh, all the way through Paul's epistles and beyond. So we need to be learners. We need to have a posture of learning and being prepared to learn in any which way that God uh, chooses to teach us. I think the language of discipling, in my circles at least, is commonly used to describe how you might help a young Christian who's just become a Christian to learn the basics of the faith. You could do a discipleship course or something. But that mentoring, it seems to me, is a bigger project, a longer project, a more integrated project, a less programmatic project. So that's the way I use them distinctly. Some Christians don't like the language of mentoring because it's not from the Bible and the language of disciple is, which is fair enough. Uh, I'm not particularly fussed about the language it's applied, but I do think we need to understand the older Christian's responsibilities towards the younger Christian, not just in helping them set up their Christian life, but being there, being involved and speaking into stages of their Christian life well beyond that initial phase. And I think partly it's because campus groups do this so well. They they practice and teach and train people in how to do basic discipleship. But, of course, campuses will do basic discipleship because they only have people for three or four years. Uh, they do some mentoring as well, of course, but we've taken our model from campus ministry. And I think in churches we need to be a little bit uh, uh, broader in our vision for what that one-on-one exchange can be excellent excellent love that love that if you want to read a little bit more about that we'll put a link in the show notes to the article that you wrote about that Uh, let me ask you uh, one more question related to mentoring before we change gears a little bit Uh, you know we we just talked about the relationship between mentoring and discipleship what about the relationship between mentoring and friendship you know, and, and this is a this is an interesting question for me because if someone asks me about our relationship, Reese, um, I will I will sometimes struggle to you know well he's my mentor and a friend and now I never say friend tour because that would be weird. <laughs> That's like a mythical creature. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a centaur, but it's a little bit different. Yeah, <laughs> or centaur. Yeah. So so um, how do you see mentoring and friendship? Related. So I think the genius of friendship is that it doesn't involve a contract. So it's something that doesn't involve a specific shape, a specific range of commitments. It's much more fluid, as it were, and it's up to the individuals to negotiate. Uh, Mentoring often becomes a friendship, I think, uh, especially if you've got the goal of preparation for separation so that you're seeing people less and less as someone who's Mm. in need of formation and more and more as as, uh, an established Christian mature in their own right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's inevitable. I don't think it's necessary. That is, I think there can be mentoring relationships which end and the individuals no longer would see themselves as friends or want to be persevering, uh, and that's that's perfectly fine, and that's really cool, and that that happens too. But I do, I do think once you've shared something of your soul, and you've given away something of your experience or insights, that that 
exchange itself is profoundly constitutive of a friendship. Mm. So it might not have begun, uh, the relationship might not have begun as one of kind of deep trust and long-term uh, vision for what you can give to each other, but it often becomes that, I think, along the way. That's really interesting to think about the importance of, um, of how you're setting out the, the idea of preparation for separation because uh, it does seem like that helps get to the place where eventually the goal isn't that this person would be uh, eternally dependent on you. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this with, with, uh, with parenting. I think about this often with my own kids that, that one day they're going to be adults. I want them to be adults. Uh, one day they're, they're going to still relate to me in, in certain um ways of respect and honor, but God willing. Uh, but, but one day they'll actually be my peers. We'll actually have come one day I'll learn from them. Uh, that day has not yet happened, but one day, one day it will happen. And, and, uh, and so I think, you know, but if I'm not prepared, I want to be prepared for that. I don't want to just train these kids to constantly depend on me. One day they need to be independent. They need to be separated. Uh, so that one day we'll be peers and we'll be friends. Well, Charles in one of our early episodes jokingly said that me and me and Trinae are just we're just feeding them so that they can leave us. <laughs> uh, all right, we're going to change gears just a little bit here. Uh, before we get into our lightning round, uh, I, we'd love to ask just one more, one or two more questions, Reese, related to your vocation. One, what are your reading habits? Uh, you, you, uh, I think you read, you you read good, as we say here. Uh, and so, what are what are some of your reading habits? Uh, so I read the scriptures most every day. Um, I don't find reading the scriptures or praying particularly hard. There's a spiritual discipline that I think I manage quite well. Uh, when it comes to reading beyond the scriptures academically or, or for leisure, uh, that's pretty seasonal, like week by week in my job you've got marking to do or grading to do and you've got kind of lots of other responsibilities but sitting back and having a week or two weeks to read without interruption almost comes really in the off seasons in the in the long winter months or the summer months so I, i'm not i'm not that guy who manages to read academic books every day and i read uh, novels or uh, other stuff only on holidays that is i don't i don't manage to read fiction during the day-to-day grind I need more emotional space when I'm a bit more relaxed and I can live in Jane Austen's world for a while or or Stephen King's world or whatever it might be. That's right. You're you're another another guest here on the podcast that is not enamored with Middle Earth. Is that right? You you're not really a Tolkien fan, are you? Well, no, I've never read C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. That's correct. <laughs> This is this is just Michael's the jaw second, has dropped. That's the second time. That's right. We had Karen Swallow Pryor on earlier, and um, she was quick to remind us that there are other fictional lands besides Middle Earth. There are other fictional characters and worthy Narnia. of in Narnia <laughs> worthy of learning about than hobbits. And we were just like, yeah, but they're still great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one day, Reese, uh. we will get you to read at least Tolkien. I had a debating class last week where I was lecturing on C.S. Lewis and I had to confess to the class that I have read C.S. Lewis's philosophy or his commentary on Psalms or so on, but uh, have never read his fiction. And my class was absolutely outraged. Their jaws dropped and <laughs> I'd, I'd lost all respect. How can you even know about Jesus if you don't know <laughs> Aslan? If you don't have a personal relationship with Aslan, what even is happening? You, I'm Please, glad I've, I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. <laughs> I know Aslan. I'm glad I let you go because you you answered my question and and I my, I'm picking my jaw up because that was my that was my shock and surprise was that you I I thought you were saying you hadn't read him period which which was more of the surprise to me than that you'd never read Narnia. Mm. Sure. Mm. Now uh, what what about writing habits? How do you uh, how, how do you write? What are some writing habits that, that you use? Yeah, again, it's kind of seasonal. So week by week, I can't really work on sustained book writing. But week by week, I am writing sermons or I'm writing 
blog posts for college or I've researched an obituary uh, this week. And so there's writing I do all the time. Uh, my habit in the past has been to wait too long, read too much before I begin to write. So I'm trying to write earlier rather than later in a, in a project. Uh, I enjoy writing more now than I ever imagined I would 20 years ago. It's actually quite good for my soul to write. It gives me a voice and uh, I've begun to really enjoy it, actually. Mm. Good. Now, speaking of writing, uh, give, us a, give us a sneak peek of any current writing projects. You're, are you writing a book right now? Uh, so, three. <laughs> okay. Wow. So the big project for the next five years is a book on Edwards and the kingdom of God and particularly how Edwards uh, thinks about the kingdom in pastoral terms. So that's my big Edwards writing project. I'm editing a book on Edwards and Germany and how he influenced Germany and how Germany influenced Edwards. But thirdly, and this is the one that uh, you, uh, uh, without realising it, alluded to earlier in the interview, I'm undertaking a translation of a biography of St. Francis of Assisi. It's been written in German and uh, I've been working on that. And I actually can do that kind of writing work mm. between lectures or uh, with an afternoon off. I don't know. There's, it's, there's something a bit about it because it's not quite so creative because you don't have to invent the words in the first place. You're just translating it. Uh, found a really magnificent biography of St. Francis written in German, and I'm um, trying to get a publisher for it at the moment. That's excellent. And, and in fact, this will be your second translation from German uh, that you've worked on in the, in the previous few years. Uh, the first being, uh, tell us a little bit about the first, the Martin Luther biography. Yes, yeah, actually by the same German author, actually. That's how I get to be with the Francis biography. Uh, yes, so I translated uh, a small biography of Martin Luther for 2017, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. A fantastic uh, book, really fresh, trying to show that Luther isn't quite the modern man that we want to think he is, but rather he's more of a medieval man that we than we care to recognise, uh, which I think changes the way we approach him and what we expect to get out of him. Uh, so he was a monk but no longer in a monastery and he brought lots of the assumptions about mentoring, about theology, about Bible reading into his Protestant convictions because he was a late medieval man. Mm. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. That's uh, Martin Luther, A Late Medieval Life, which I, I actually think is my go-to recommendation for someone who's uh, wanting to – It can be. it's very accessible – uh, and, and, and the pages move. And so um, my kind of go-to, if someone wants to learn about Luther's life, we'll put that in the show notes. Also a beautiful, I mean, it's just a handsome book. Mm -hmm. And that matters. You can I, judge a book yeah. by its cover. <laughs> All right, we're going to transition into the lightning round where what we're, what we're asking you here, Reese, is make these, we're, we're just, give us some quick answers. Uh, so first up, let me ask you this. What is, a, what is the book you've given most as a gift? Uh, well... Uh, to non-Christians, it's probably a little evangelistic book that we use in Australia. But to Christians, it's one of my own. It's the little book, Heroes of the Faith for Today, standing on their shoulders like gift stacks of in a way. Excellent. What about, what's the best distinctively Australian food? Uh, so I know you guys can eat lamb but you don't eat lamb very much. So lamb roast is probably my go-to Australian mm. uh, party so it's, service. So it's not a blooming onion? I, I just assumed that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have now tried a blooming onion in North Carolina, and it, I expected it to disappoint, and it certainly did. <laughs> boom roasted. Oh, boom roasted Outback Steakhouse. Okay, <laughs> next question vegemite vegemite yes or no yes disgusting okay michael i'm gonna throw one in that's not that's not on our okay um i just want to keep the australian train going because most of my i'm admitting my ignorance here but most of my knowledge of australia comes from discovery channel <laughs> and and out back to a lesser extent and then like mark sayers who i i listen to a lot 
Um, but I feel like there's this uh, idea in my head that you are constantly seeing like giant spiders, poisonous snakes, scorpions. <laughs> Reese actually rides a kangaroo to work in the morning. <laughs> so how often do you actually come across uh, scary, venomous creatures? Uh, very sc- scary and venomous, very rarely. So I've I've done a lot of hiking around Australia and I've very rarely ever seen a snake. Once I was about to stand on one, once raised up, uh, raised its neck up, I was walking in Tasmania and it kind of looked very threatening. All Tasmanian snakes are venomous and deadly. So I ran quickly back down the track. But So that's only twice when I've done a lot of walking. We certainly would have assumed that all Tasmanian snakes were deadly and yeah, poisonous. Yeah, you say the word Tasmania yes. and, and the images that fill my head are all like just scary creatures. Okay, next question. If you could be mentored by any pastor in church history, who would be on your short list? I think probably Charles Simeon of Cambridge, Mm. who trained up perhaps 500 young men for Anglican ministry at the end of the 18th century. He was a pastor of Anglican Church in in Cambridge in the UK and uh, be be amazing to receive his ministry personally. You know, you can't see this, listeners at home, but uh, Reese has three different historical figures on the shelf behind him, and Charles Simeon is not even one of them. You need to get a bobblehead. I see Spurgeon, Luther, and Edwards, but no Simeon. So, so we need to work on a Simeon bobblehead to maybe we could send send that as well. A I gift. think we're going to probably have to pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that they'd make those. At least not yet. Yeah. Reese, what about what's the best book of theology for the average Joe? So I still think that Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, is foundational and just wonderful in its scope. So I'm really prepared to, as an introduction to theology, which is probably not known for, it's probably known for something more pietistic than that. But nonetheless, it's it's profoundly uh, formative in theology. Excellent, excellent. And uh, and how about the best book of theology for the pastor theologian? This is a, a particularly, this is part of our audience is uh, guys who are in the pastorate and are really seeking to think deeply theologically and then pastor that way. So what, what book of theology would you recommend for the pastor theologian? Yes, I, I struggle. I struggle to know how to answer that to the truth. I'd first want to work out what they were weak at in their theology and then recommend that book. So if you haven't read a book, a theology book on the spirit, then get to it. If you haven't read a theology book on uh, the nature of atonement this last five years and do it. So I think my recommendation would be um, person specific. I love it. The men- the mentor. The integrated Reese approach. The mentor is All right. coming out. Yep. Okay. What about what's something under $100 that every theologian should own? A gold pen. A gold Can, pen? Do you have one next to you? Can you hold it up? This is really just for me and Michael, yeah. but we appreciate it. Wow, look at that. <laughs> when you write with that, you feel like you're a real you're a real guy. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, I love that. Important, most importantly, it's good to use a decent pen when yes. you're getting um, man and wife to sign the book when you just married them. Oh, there you go. There you go. Now, so so let me double double up here. So when you are doing your kind of preliminary writing, are you doing that pen and paper rather than a laptop? No, no. I have lots of pieces of paper on my desk with notes on it. But no, my preliminary writing is, is certainly on the laptop. All right, all right, all right. So uh, what's the worst advice you regularly hear given to young pastors and theologians? I think people are led to believe that they can change the world quickly and actually more often than not it doesn't come very quickly unless you're the senior pastor and then it doesn't come very quickly so i think Mm -hmm. people are led to believe that if you've got kind of sass and energy and smarts that you'll kind of make a difference quickly uh i just don't think it works like that Mm. Mm. doesn't matter how much sass you have it's going to take some time that's a good word how do you get unstuck on a project uh, what are some tricks and, and tips that you can give us to get unstuck? Uh, I walk around the block. And, in fact, during COVID, during shutdown, I've been walking around the block twice or three times a day for 20 minutes. 
and I'm doing it more often than I normally would, but uh, it's brilliant. And, and, you know, the Jesuits, when they read, they walk at the same time because they reckon that if you're walking, you're actually able to process what you're thinking. And I find it, it works. I don't have a book with me because that looks a bit weird when you're walking the block, but uh, it does help me to process things that at my desk I was stuck on for the last hour. Mm. So uh, I find going for a walk enormously helpful. I don't think we've had a single person share a different answer than that. So great answer. Uh, and, you know, maybe I should start walking more. Yeah, running, walking, it's uh, movement. <laughs> movement is everyone's okay. tip. All right, last question. What are you most excited about in your own vocational future? Uh, there's uh, nothing that I'm more excited about than uh, encouraging people to pursue Anglican ministry. I mean, any ministry really, but this is my context in particular. So if I can find people who want to think about and approach Anglican ministry as their lifetime vocation, then count me in. Amen. Amen. Hey, it was great having you. Thank you to Dr. Reese Bazan for joining us from his study. Are you in your study right now up, up on that uh, third level? In Melbourne, Australia, thank you listeners for tuning in to the Hammer and Quill episode 10 and interview with Reese Bazant. Tune in next week as we interview. We'll have right here in the global headquarters of the Bonhoeffer House, Dr. Jerry McDermott, who will be here to talk about his career as a theologian, his newest book, Everyday Glory, which we're going to be giving away uh, via social media, so be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, please subscribe, review us on iTunes, Throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. Peace.